Uh, small story about my wife. <laughs> yeah, my wife. Angie has a bias against any movie that has anything to do with space. She will not watch them, no matter how critically acclaimed, no matter how great the story. If it's like just a West, like it's a totally a Western, but it's set in space, like Star Wars, won't watch it just because it's space. If it's like real life human drama, like Apollo 13, what a great movie. She'll never know. She won't watch it. Um, yeah, she just, she's got this bias against space. And I have a confession. I'm selling my wife out, but here's my confession. I have a bias against ship things, about nautical stories. It's just a part of life and a part of the world that I have no idea about. When they're talking about rigging and masts and, and sails and, and I, I don't know. I had this vague picture of like some guy holding a rope tied to, a, I, I don't know. I, grandma grew up in a part of the world where ships are central to life in Nova Scotia. And I'm sure if I had grown up there, it'd be a different story, but ship stories don't appeal to me a whole lot, except for that scene in Ben-Hur where the slaves are rowing and the battle speed, attack speed, that scene is awesome. But in general, I just, I, I don't, sure, Titan, yeah, it's much more of a, that's like, Star Wars is a Western set in space. Titanic is just a romance set on a doomed ship. But anyway, despite all of my biases against like naval and nautical stories, this is a good one. The Shipwreck of Paul, Luke writes it like a pulse-pounding thriller. It's written from Luke's eyewitness perspective. He was there. He's very excited to share this story with you. In many ways, the presence of Paul's shipwreck is a bit jarring. For a book that has all these theological, like deep theological implications and and um, purposes and statements to make, it all of a sudden takes a break to breathlessly narrate this high seas adventure. It kind of feels a little out of place, especially because it takes a whole chapter and a half. And even though he's a total landlubber like myself, you can tell that this story is of great significance to Luke. Not just because he was there to witness it, it's important to Luke because in this story, we see the faithful, hopeful, and wise acts of grace and service um, from Paul. Paul is a hero in this story. In all this, we see adventure. We see the adventure of a lifetime. In fact, my hope is that we will see our own adventure, your own adventure of your own lifetime here in this story. With apologies to Tom Cochran, in Acts 27 and 28, life ain't a highway, life's a shipping lane. And that ship, our ship, though it is battered and tossed, God will show up again and again, demonstrating his love and his care and his grace. In the midst of storms and shipwrecks, we see a man of God demonstrating how all men and all women of God can shine as hopeful, wise, and servant-hearted lights, even while all the world seems dark and utterly hopeless in the storm. So all aboard and anchors away. I, don't, I only kind of know what those things mean. All aboard and anchors away as we examine the adventure of a lifetime. The adventure of our lifetimes. Let's read Acts 27 in the first part of 28. Actually, we'll read it in chunks. So actually, we're going to start with 27 verses 1 to 5. When it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, by the way, why is Paul setting sail for Italy? Why does he need to go to Rome? He's appealed to Caesar. That's right. Uh, These unjust charges against him that linger and linger and linger. He finally wants them behind him, and so he's appealing to Caesar, so he's going to Rome to do just that. 
Um, they set sail for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. So clearly we're going to be relying on our old friend, the Big Map Omissions, to help make sense of this journey. Uh, so they start Caesarea, that's where the trial was, and they sail first to Sidon where Paul gets off the boat, hangs out with his friends, and then they sail to Myra there. We are back in another we section of the book of Acts. The we sections are the parts of Acts where Luke is present. He's back. He's back with, with Paul. Probably he either joined the ship as the ship's official doctor or as a, a co, co-prisoner with Paul, or he just paid his way onto the ship and, and joined. But he's there. And he's brought a friend. Aristarchus is also accompanying Paul and Luke. Aristarchus was a fellow church leader who we first met back in chapter 19 from Macedonia. He's one of the group that came with Paul to Jerusalem with that big offering as a gift of thanks to the Jerusalem church, a peacemaking gift to the Jerusalem church. That was about three years ago already that they they left Macedonia for Jerusalem. In two letters written after the events of Acts, Colossians and Philemon, both written after um, Paul is in Rome, Aristarchus is mentioned in both those letters as a fellow prisoner and worker with Paul. So clearly, he hung around when they finally got to their destination. So that's cool. On board with Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus is a boat full of prisoners, most likely heading towards their doom. Some may have been uh, part of the slave trade. They were um, slaves from Africa being shipped up towards Rome. Some may have been uh, criminals who are facing either just direct execution or they would be forced uh, fed to the lions for sport for the Romans, as the Christians would soon experience. Or many of them um, may have been forced into gladiatorship, which slaves could be forced into if they were burly dudes and they would fight each other for, for the enjoyment of the crowds. But they're not going to Rome for any happy reason. There's a term for that. It's called a Roman holiday. It's where you head off to somewhere great. For some reason, that's terrible. They would have been chained to the wood of the lower decks, possibly forced to row the ship at times when it needed to be rowed. But Paul, though he was a prisoner, was free to roam about because he there were no formal charges against him, and he's a Roman citizen, so he's free to roam about the deck and do as he pleases. He just has to keep chains on as a sign of his legal status. But they all boarded a ship under the care of Julius, a centurion who continues Luke's tradition of portraying Roman soldiers in a highly favorable light, even though Ostensibly, they should be the enemies. Rome is the conquering force. You would think that that these Greeks and these Jews who are writing the New Testament would hate them and would paint them in an unfavorable light. But whenever we see a centurion in Luke's writing, he's always doing something good and honorable and worthy. And Julius is no exception. I think to Luke, who is not a Jew, um, like these centurions are not a Jew, I think he relates to them. Uh, in, in some way, because it's a good reminder that no man and no woman is so far outside of God's grace that they are our enemy. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, as Paul would write. We're fighting um, against 
unseen things, evil in the world. We are fighting the world and keep it faceless and nameless because when we put a face to our enemies and make people our enemies, you can't love them. And then what's the point? We're, we're called over and over to love our enemies. And so men like Julius, who's a centurion, who should be an enemy, is not an enemy. Instead, he's a fellow sinner in need of God's love and grace. And that's really how we should view all people around us, no matter how much their identity or their actions show their hatred to us, we should not respond in hatred. We should respond in love. Um, Julius would certainly come face to face with God's love and grace repeatedly in the presence of Paul over the next six months or so. Julius would get a taste of love and grace from Paul, but Paul would also get a taste of love and grace from Julius, interestingly enough, his Roman guard. In verse 3, Paul experiences the first of those acts of kindness. He's given leave to go hang out with his Christian brothers and sisters in Sidon. He leaves the boat, probably under guard, but he's allowed to go and do as he pleases until the ship sets sail again. Clearly, Paul has already made an impression on his supervising soldier. From Sidon, they move along the coast. There's the map again. Until they drop anchor in a city in Asia Minor called Myra. Myra is one of the major port cities in the grain trade. Grain was grown in, in northern Africa and shipped up the coast to Rome and to the empire. And Myra was one of the major ports for that. But Myra is also has historical significance for another totally different reason. Myra was the home of a church bishop by the name of Nicholas, who became a saint. Saint Nicholas. Saint Nick. So Paul takes a, a quick stop over on his way to Rome to hang out at Santa Claus's hometown. I just thought that was cool. Which also reminds me, as they sailed between the island of Cyprus and Cilicia, as they sailed in that strait between them, Paul would have likely caught a glimpse of the Taurus Mountains. That's his hometown. Tarsus is right in there. It's likely, then, that this was the last time he would ever see his hometown, is this fleeting glimpse of the mountains as he sails by. He would never go back to that place again, the place where he was born. Add that to the fact that he's also leaving Jerusalem behind, probably for the last time, the city where he was raised as a man hungry for God. And this trip serves to propel Paul away from his past and towards God's planned future for him, secure in the promise that he would indeed, indeed make the name of Jesus famous in the empire's capital. He sails past his former life, and forward towards impending suffering. But he does it gladly. He doesn't look back with regret. He doesn't even make mention of the fact that he sails past his former hometown. He's happy to go where he's going, where God calls him to go. Let's read verses 6 to 12. There, in Myra, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the fast, Yom Kippur. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. That's, by the way, Phoenix on the island of Crete, not Phoenix, Arizona. They're not sailing that far, in case you're curious. This was a harbor in Crete, oh, there you go, uh, facing both southwest and northwest. Okay, 
The group now boards a larger, a new, larger ship loaded with grain from Alexandria and Egypt, but there's a problem. The dangerous season for sailing the Mediterranean was roughly September 14th. My textbook said very clearly September 14th, my birthday. What a dangerous day. Um, to November 11th. So from my birthday to Remembrance Day, uh, that you could sail the Mediterranean, but it was treacherous. After that, after November 11th, all sailing ceased for the winter when it was far too dangerous, due not just to the threat of storms, as we're about to see, but also because the sky would be overcast for weeks at a time. And when you're sailing, when they're sailing the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago, they relied on the stars and the sun and the moon to guide them. So without those guides, you don't have any idea where you were. So it was just really dangerous. Mention of the fast, which is Yom Kippur, still celebrated today in verse 9, tells us that um, they know that Yom Kippur fell on October 5th in the year 59 AD. So they are well into the dangerous travel season here. And Paul knows this. Um, the city of Fair Havens on the island of Crete, that, that was a dangerous place for them to be. Fair Havens, it offered safety from the elements, but there was nowhere for those on board to stay. Fair Havens was too small. There was no lodging for them, which means they would have had to winter, spend months at a time on the ship, cramped, filthy, uncomfortable. And so everybody, including the ship's owner and uh, the pilot, they convinced Julius, who was the man in charge, no, we're not going to stay here, sitting in some boat for months at a time. We want to go to Phoenix where we can get off the boat, have a good meal. Um, and so that's what they did. Uh, however, Paul has been in this situation before. In 2 Corinthians 11, he tells us he's been in three prior shipwrecks. He wrote 2 Corinthians years before he ever got on this ship. So before he gets on this ship, he's already been in three different shipwrecks which tells me maybe you should take a donkey once in a while, Paul. Um, but he had been in these circumstances, and he was beginning to get concerned. And so he speaks his mind, warning of impending danger, with loss of cargo and vessel, and even loss of life. And keep that in mind. Here, Paul warns of loss of life. We'll get back to that. But the lure of greater comfort in Phoenix is too much of a draw. Julius agrees to press on, despite the concerns presented by Paul not to mention the concerns of the calendar itself. And when Luke writes this, he says, he's kind of like astonished. He said, they decided to go to Phoenix despite what Paul said. He like can't believe that anybody would not listen to Paul because Paul is this titanic figure of wisdom. And so he writes, I can't believe they chose to go on. What fools. And uh, that's foreshadowing, by the way. Let's read verses 13 to 26. When the gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, however, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the ship anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. 
After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, we should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Paul is not above throwing in a, I told you so, here and there. Guys, you should have listened to me. It's the only reason we're in this situation. Um, if you had, then we would, you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So that's some good news. At first, the captain was feeling really good about the risky decision to set out for Phoenix. They had fair weather, smooth sailing, but that all changed real quick. Out of nowhere, it became very clear why sailing the Mediterranean in October was treacherous. The sailors had a name for this typhoon-like wind that sprang up suddenly from the northeast, a Euroquillo. Euro means east, Quillo means north, so it's literally a nor'easter. We have, they, they call them that even here in North America today, right? Like you've heard of a nor'eastern wind. It's an ugly, brutal wind. Um, they would never make it to Phoenix in this storm, but they did make it to the small island of Cauda. And Cauda offered a small amount of relative safety. Here, Luke breathlessly recalls a bunch of sailory things, a bunch of details undertaken to preserve the lives of those on board. First, they hauled in the dinghy, the lifeboat, which was taking in water and was dragging behind them, so they brought it on board. Then they sent a bunch of ropes under the hull to gird it and secure it from the battering waves with difficulty, as Luke mentions. He's probably writing this not long after the fact, remembering the blisters on his fingers from doing so. And finally, they started tossing any unnecessary gear overboard, and even the cargo, which I'm sure the ship owner was like, oh, do we have to do this? Get rid of all his profits, throw it into the ocean. Livestock that was on board that they ate, they threw that in the sea. Anything that they could spare, they tossed into the ocean. They were afraid that they'd sail towards the quicksands off the coast of Libya. There's um, sandbars that will catch you and sink you. They were afraid of that. And so they dropped anchor to offer resistance behind them, and they drifted away. They just drifted out into the open ocean. Despite all these precautions, the storm continued to batter the hope out of them until they had no hope left. Here's a description of what Paul and the others endured. This is from John Pollock. He's the author of a biography of Paul that I've been reading. He writes this. Without much weight of sail, they were violently storm-tossed, bobbing about like a cork, with the spray and rain preventing fires and drenching supplies, clothes, and everything above and below decks. What little was eaten would be thrown up by retching seasick stomachs. The heaving, slippery boards made any movement painful and, I would add, made sleep nearly impossible. The convicts and prisoners freed from their irons would take turns at the pumps, but with the seeping of water through strained timbers, the level of water rose remorselessly and the ship settled lower and lower in the water. Day after miserable day, night after terrifying night, they rose and fell on mountainous seas. Thick, unbroken clouds prevented any reckoning of direction. The captain had no idea of the ship's position. After, get this, 11 or 12 days of this, almost two weeks in those conditions, sinking was inevitable, a matter of a few days at most, even if the storm stopped, which it wasn't about to, which would mean the loss of everyone's life if they abandoned ship. Man, like, no wonder all hope of being saved was abandoned. I don't know how, 
I would find it hard to survive a day in those conditions, and they survived almost two weeks. It sounds like an absolutely horrifying ordeal. But it was, it was then, when all hope was gone, that God's care began to radiate out of Paul. Earlier, Paul said they should have stayed in, in fair havens or else they would lose the cargo, the ship, and the lives of those on board. That was Paul speaking from experience, from wisdom. If we keep going, disaster will strike and you all, you all lose your lives. That was Paul's opinion. It was a good opinion. They should have listened to him. Now, however, he has a slightly different message that seems to contradict the first message. They've already lost the cargo, so that's gone. Paul's already said he's promised, in fact, that the ship will run aground and be destroyed. So that's two for three. But take courage, because God has promised that not one life will be lost, as Paul thought earlier. Why the difference between the two? The first statement was spoken without divine authority. That was just Paul sharing his wisdom. But this, an angel appears speaking for God. They should have listened to Paul, but now in their darkest despair, they ought to really listen to the God who promises to spare them on account of his servant Paul. God has a very important plan for Paul to reach Rome and proclaim Jesus there. And God's not going to let something as insignificant, as puny as a two-week typhoon for a storm, get in the way of his plans. The God whom Paul serves will demonstrate his power, his providence, and his love. All you need to do is take courage and have faith. And I'm indicating you, because that is not for Paul and the men on board, that's for us. All we need to do is take courage and have faith. Meanwhile, the ship is steadily drifting away at a rate of about a mile and a half an hour to the northeast. Unknown to anyone on board, they were soon to run into the small Italian island of Malta. Paul's saving faith in the God he serves was about to be rewarded. Let's read up to verse 38. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They sensed it with their ears, by the way. They could hear the breakers. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Those treacherous sailors. Hey guys, we're just going to go fix some anchors, and then they're going to sail away and leave, abandon everyone on board. But Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And by this point, they've learned to listen to Paul. Uh, So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you, again he says, not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food together or ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. At this point, Paul has superseded the captain, the ship owner, and Julius himself as the de facto leader of the ship. His is the voice that everyone is listening to. Out of 276 men, only three, Paul and his two friends, have any kind of faith in God. But that small amount of faith authenticated Paul's leadership in three ways. It only took a small amount of faith, 
to convince the others. And these are the things that convince them. First, the promise of incoming land. Paul said, we're going to run into an island. And the sailor, it's probably the next morning, the sailors start hearing the breakers and they know they're approaching land. So that's the first authentication. Next, Paul displays his wisdom by shrewdly discerning the deceitful intentions of the fleeing soldiers, which if they left, meant doom for everyone else because they're the ones who knew how to take care of the ship in its last moments. And so if they leave, everybody's in trouble. And so Paul forbids that. And they listen. So that's the second thing. And finally, the smallest and most powerful of his acts of leadership. He ate some bread. That's the most powerful thing he does to, to show his leadership, to show his faith. He eats some bread. Why is that so powerful? Well, given the conditions they've endured for weeks, the men were too despaired, probably more than that, too seasick to eat anything. As soon as they take in food, they vomit it back up. The bread also may have grown a little bit moldy from the hull being completely saturated with water all the time. But Paul knows that they'll need the strength. And more than that, he knows the simple power of shared sufferers breaking bread together. I'll indicate this as I say that again. He knows the power of shared sufferers breaking bread together, which is what we do every week. In this unique instance, it's an act of defiance against the storm. When Paul stands up and says, hey, let's have some bread together. He's basically shaking his fist at the storm saying, you have no power here. We're going to eat, we're going to get strong, and we're going to get through this. Basically, Paul's saying, rage all you want, wind. Destroy all you want, waves. Drench our hopes all you want, rain. But we will survive. Not a single dripping hair on our heads will be lost. The God that I serve is greater than any storm, and I trust in his promises. So despite the wind and the waves and the rain, despite the pain and the fatigue and the seasickness, despite the sufferings of yesterday and the uncertainties of tomorrow, I will thank you, Father God. I will take this bread that you've given us, and I will share it with those I suffer with, and I will prepare to survive in order to make your name great on this ship, on that island, and on the the country of this empire that we are all part of. I eat this bread for you, God, in defiance of the storm, knowing that you will save us all. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So let's break bread together. And everyone on board was encouraged and ate together for the first time in nearly two weeks. I just think that is just, it's so small, but it is a simple and beautiful demonstration of faith and leadership and holy defiance. I love that phrase, holy defiance, that no matter what's going on around here, I'm clinging to my Jesus. I'm going to defy the storm and I'm going to take bread and I'm going to be strong and I'm going to survive, breaking bread in the midst of the storm which I don't know if there's a better illustration for what church is, to be honest. Gathering together to break bread in the midst of the storm. Let's read the rest of the story from verse 38 to verse 10 of the last chapter of Acts, you guys. We've done it. Next week, we finish Acts. Okay, let's read the rest. We're really flying now. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail of the wind and made for the beach. By the way, all of this might as well just be wah, wah, wah. I don't know what any of it is, but the point is they've got a plan. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. Whoa, what's that? The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. 
But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, Oh, he's a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius. Ah, that's not a pretty name, and I may not be pronouncing it right. Let's try Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. By the way, there's a term for that. It's the Maltese flu. It's from drinking tainted goat milk. I didn't know that. Now you know that. That's what this guy's suffering from. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. Whew. So since the soldiers were responsible for the criminals, they planned to slaughter them rather than risk an escape. But yet again, for like the hundredth time on this ill-fated voyage, the presence of Paul proves to be salvation for those aboard. On account of Paul, Julius forbids the execution of any of the criminals. An innocent life protects the lives of the guilty. Where have we heard that before? Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? An innocent life covering the lives of the guilty. And so everyone reaches landfall safely, which is an act of providence, because if they hadn't drifted, where's that map? If they hadn't drifted directly into this tiny little spot of land, they would have continued to sail adrift for another 200 miles until they they ran into the coast of Tunisia. You think they would have lasted another 200 miles? They wouldn't have lasted maybe another five miles. So that was providence, that they landed at, on that island at that exact time. Everyone would have died well before then. God needed Paul in Rome, and so they just happened to run into Malta. And the angel's promise was fulfilled. But that doesn't mean Paul's work was done. The island natives welcomed the shipwrecked crew with a level of hospitality that must have felt absolutely divine to their exhausted and waterlogged souls. To, to see a fire on shore, oh, and warm food, and blankets? Are you kidding me? This is heaven! After two weeks adrift. And yet, despite the chains, despite the fatigue, despite the elevated leadership status that Paul had, Paul immediately finds a way to serve. No task is too small in the kingdom, and so he starts gathering wood. Except one of those pieces of wood wasn't a piece of wood. It was a torpid snake. You know how snakes in the cold, they kind of go into semi-hibernation? That's what happened here. And so he gathers it thinking to stick. When he throws it in the fire, the snake comes back to, not back to life, but comes back to activity and latches on to Paul in front of a crowd of local eyewitnesses who attribute it to justice. Every man gets what they deserve, they say. Uh, Sure, he landed ashore, but he must be guilty if this poisonous snake sent by the gods is putting an end to him. And so the the locals wait for a show. They don't do anything to help him. They just sit back and watch this, you guys. Waiting for him to start convulsing and seizing and frothing at the mouth. And they wait, and they wait, 
They wait, and eventually their impression of the scene changes. Paul just shakes the thing off into the fire. And in a reverse of Acts 14, where Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra, they're welcomed as gods before being chased out as criminals. This is the reverse. Here, they're first, Paul's first regarded as a criminal, but now he's being venerated as a god. Right at the very end of Mark, Mark was written before Luke, but there's a tag ending to the book of Mark that was written after Luke. And in that tag ending of Mark, it says, you'll be able to handle serpents and they, they won't harm you. As, as a sign of God's miraculous power with you, you'll be able to handle even serpents. So no evil will touch you. And that's, that's Paul here. And it, it helps convince the locals that he's from God. He's not a God, he's from God. After that, for three months, Paul remained a radiant light of salvation to the nations, and particularly this little island nation, beginning with the household of the chief, Publius. The hospitality of the Maltese was met with Paul's, and probably Dr. Luke's, healing ministry. On Malta, to this very day, there's a proud tradition of Christianity that traces back to that exact encounter we just read about. In fact, the bay where Paul and the ship ran ashore, they know what bay it is. It's called St. Paul's Bay. And the locals there are very proud of their part of the Bible story, Bible history. When it was time to go, the people of Malta loaded the crew with gracious gifts to ensure a safe and comfortable final leg of their journey to mainland Italy and eventually Rome itself. Finally, next week we get to Rome. So that's the story of Paul's shipwreck in the book of Acts. It's not Paul's last adventure, but it's essentially the last of his adventures that Luke would record. Even though I don't feel the need to know anything about the maritime world, just like Angie doesn't care about space. I don't really care about... It's, this story is still fascinating to me. Sure, the details that I can imagine in my mind are fascinating. And it's a harrowing tale of human error and human endurance. But mostly I find it fascinating because it's such a beautiful and powerful portrait of our own adventure. And make no mistake, though none of us will likely ever be shipwrecked off the coast of Malta, what we read here is a story of our own adventure. And I know... It's cliche to the point of ridiculousness for me to say, but the adventure of life that you are on is like the fateful voyage of Paul in Acts 27. Occasionally you experience smooth sailing. Other times you are fighting into the wind with your mind absorbed by the cargo that you carry, your things, your stuff. And other times you're feeling empty and tossed around on a violent sea that's beyond our control. Whatever the status of your ship, your own ship, your own journey, your own adventure, and whatever the status of the world around you, whether it's storms or smooth sailing, there are lessons that we can learn from Acts 27 and 28, and I'll be quick. First lesson, first of all, God is in control. Despite what it looks like, God is in control, and he will preserve his servants for his glory. That doesn't mean the servants won't suffer. Obviously, Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, they're suffering for two weeks on this stupid ship. Life is awful. So it doesn't mean that they won't, won't suffer. It just means that, that God is in control and that his will is greater. God offered messages of hope when it was most hopeless. He promised to preserve life and to preserve purpose. He refused to let outside conditions hamper his will. What he required from his servants amidst the storm was faith in that will, in his will. Despite being exhausted, sick, and lost in the middle of the ocean, They could take courage by breaking bread together. The broken bread was a reminder that in brokenness, Jesus accomplished the greatest acts of of love and power and salvation. It's in his brokenness that salvation came. In his brokenness, Jesus accomplished his Father's will. 
And the same is true for us tired, weak, and lost shipmates today. On this adventure of a lifetime, he is faithful even when we are broken in the storm. So that's the first thing. He's caring for you even when you are being battered by the storms of life. But speaking of God's will, what exactly is God's will? For Paul, God's will was for him to proclaim Jesus' name in Rome. That was the goal. But Paul was lucky because he knew the goal. I don't know, do you know your goal? Do you know your end point, your end destination in life? Because I sure don't. If you would have told me 20 years ago I'd be pastoring this church that I was going to youth group in, I would have thought that's ridiculous. Here I am. I had no idea. We don't know what our goal is. Paul had the benefit of knowing. We don't always know what our Rome is, where our destination will be. But you know what? The exciting part of Paul's adventure wasn't Rome. It was getting to Rome. That's where the excitement happened. That's where the crazy stuff happened. That's where the adventure was, was the journey to his goal. If Paul had just been saying, hey, my purpose is Rome itself, he would have missed all the good stuff he could do in the midst of the storm that he was in right now, today. He wasn't so focused on Rome that he forgot to do God's will in the immediate sense. For every single person he encountered on this adventure, Paul was a lighthouse shining in the gloom of the storm. His light shone in several ways. He was a light of hope. He delivered messages of hope from God to the hopeless neighbors beside him, urging them to take courage twice. In like five verses, he says, take courage, not a hair will be lost. He communicates God's plan of salvation and then takes steps to taste it for himself in front of the whole crew. God wants you to be strong. Take this bread. You'll be safe. And then he models that for them. He does as he says. And that holy defiance brought hope to the hopeless. Next, he was a light of wisdom. Those aboard soon learned the lesson that Paul's words were not to be regarded lightly. He had a depth of experience coupled with a deep connection with God, the God of wisdom. And that created its own perfect storm. Paul had experience and he had had wisdom connected to God. And so he was a man who could be trusted and he spoke the truths that needed to be spoken in a way that others respected. And it led to lives being saved. Next, he was a light of witness to God above. He attributed words of salvation uh, not to himself, but to God. And he kept no praise for himself. Even when the islanders thought, that's a pretty good situation. To run aground on an island and have all the locals think you're a god, you could get away with a lot of stuff in that situation, I would think. But that's not Paul's style. He kept no praise for himself. His words of thanks before breaking bread in the darkest gloom are a powerful witness to the commanding peace that we have in Jesus. That peace was a witness for everyone on board. And finally, it was a light of unconditional love and servant-heartedness. All were to be spared aboard the ship. All. Who does that all include? Convicted felons heading off to be punished in Rome. But they were saved because of Paul. Paul was also not above gathering sticks, and then despite the ordeals at sea, he was happy to serve the Maltese people tirelessly through healing miracles, refusing any fancy title they would give him. Servant-heartedness and unconditional love. And that's just what Paul had to offer. That's just one adventure some 19 and a half centuries ago. You are all on your own adventures, and you have your own light to offer to the people around you today. You have the same hope and the same saving words that Paul had, the saving words of Jesus. You have the same holy defiance in the face of a world that demands ugliness and brokenness from you. You could defy that and instead offer peace and hope, joy and love. You have the same courage in the will of your Father that Paul had. You have the same light of wisdom, too. 
You have experiences and stories and integrity that, that make your word mean something. You have the same light of witness as Paul did. You can give glory to God for all your successes. And in your weakest moments, you can still give thanks and communicate to others why you are grateful despite your suffering. And finally, you have the same light of servant-hearted love. You too can show mercy to the unloved and the unwanted. Like Paul to Julius, you too can view potential enemies as brothers and sisters in Christ. You too can find ways to serve your church and your neighbor, if, even if you're feeling too big for small acts of service or too small for big acts of service. doesn't matter. You can still do it. Everyone was alive because of Paul, yet there he was picking up dead branches on the beach like some schmo, shaking evil things off into the fire in order to serve others. You can do that. In fact, you do do that. This life is an adventure, a beautiful, messy, unexpected adventure full of stormy tempests and smooth sailing alike. It's a wonderful gift for me to share this adventure with you. I want to encourage you to see yourself as a beacon of light in the storm around you. You have hope, you have wisdom, you have a story to share, you have service to offer, and you have a God who faithfully guides and protects you from island to island and from wave to wave within the storm. You might sail right past old parts of your life, but you are at peace because your eyes are fixed on the glory ahead. An entire boatload of people, and then an entire island of people, and then an entire empire of people were saved because Paul allowed his light to shine in the storm. Think about that for a second. When sorrows like sea billows roll, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. What an adventure. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our light and our anchor and our lighthouse in storms. But I pray that we would take this example of Paul and we would become light of hope, light of wisdom, light of servant-hearted love, that we would be shining witnesses for you and that our witness would draw people to you, uh, that they would find safety in your harbor. I pray that we would be people who, despite the storm raging around us, break bread in holy defiance of that storm, that we, sit, that we, we cling to life, we cling to love, we cling to grace, and that we are secured joyfully by those things in the midst of the storm. And that in our, in our hope and in our peace, that we would draw others aboard and save them too. Thank you for the adventure of this life. Um, God, it is an honor to be your child in this adventure with other children of yours. And we thank you for, for all that you do to keep us safe and provide and care for us. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. Next week, we're done acts, you guys. It's happening. It's, it's really happening. Two years in, we're going to finish up acts, and then I don't know what we're going to do. I had this vague picture of like some guy holding a rope tied to, a, I, I don't know. <laughs>